Welcome, everybody, to the fifth podcast for the Tennessee Association of Recovery Court Professionals. I am Marie Crossan, the Executive Director. This podcast is intended to be a resource for the recovery courts to provide them with information, inspiration, and illumination on a variety of topics. We hope others will enjoy this podcast as well, and we'll keep all of them under 30 minutes. We have expanded our access to our podcast, just so you know, so you can still find all our episodes on our website, but we also have a Buzzsprout site, and we're on Apple, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Alexa, others I can't name. If you go to the Buzzsprout site, you can find whatever option um, appeals to you. If you have an idea for a podcast, please reach out to me at marie.crossin at tarcp.org. And today joining me is Kaylin Flam, who is with the 16th Judicial District Recovery Court. And I noticed that there actually is a courts, plural, uh-huh. um, in your signature line when you emailed to me. So tell yeah. us where your recovery courts are located and what types you work with. Sure. We are located in Rutherford County, specifically in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, I call it the courts because we kind of work under the umbrella of recovery courts. I work with all of them in my position, but primarily with the drug court and the mental health court. We also have a veterans court, a DUI court, and what's considered a co-occurring disorders court. That's kind of our umbrella of recovery courts. But you specifically work mostly with the adult recovery court and the mental health court. Yes. And there's a veterans treatment court too. Is that right? There is a veterans treatment court. Uh huh. And I will occasionally see a client or two from there if needed. So we try to all help each other out here. So we bounce back and forth as needed. That's the name of the game, right? (laughs) And I noticed in the signature line that you have all these acronyms behind your name. So (laughs) tell us what those are and what they stand for. Sure. So I have a master's of occupational therapy. So my credentials are OTR slash L, which is registered occupational therapist and licensed. And so as a occupational therapist or in the profession of occupational therapy, we define occupation as anything that takes up your time in the day. So the first thing people go to is, oh, occupation, you must help me find a job. So yes, I can help with job skills, but also anything else that takes up your time in the day. So hobbies, everything from getting dressed in the morning to your sleep routine and all the building blocks it takes to be successful at that. So like our motto for occupational therapy is making a life worth living. So making you independent and what you want to do. And in the recovery court setting, a lot of the individuals we work with, of course, have maybe not had the most legal recreational hobbies outside of what they've done before. And so we're looking at successful transition as well as sober and productive leisure occupation, sober and productive job opportunities, And also all the building blocks for that. So emotional regulation and coping skills and that sort of thing. I think it really is like a whole new level of looking at what it takes to live life on life's terms, so to speak, right? For the recovery court participants, 
really getting down to the nitty gritty of, you know, what do I need to do and what do I need to learn to be successful every day in sobriety, right? Absolutely. Yeah. I teach a variety of groups that are focusing on even the most basic life skills like hygiene and grooming and doing your laundry, med management, budgeting. And it's not that our participants are unable to do those things cognitively. A lot of the times it's simply the fact nobody's taken the time to teach them or gone through that with them. They've just always been in the survival mode. And then also my go-to example is the building blocks to be successful in those occupations. So if you wake up in the morning and stub your toe on the end of the bed and it completely messes up your entire day because you have no emotional regulation or coping skills, then you're not going to be successful in your daily occupation. So if an individual is not able to regulate their emotions, we start with that. That's the foundational level. And then we have to build off of that. Yeah. I was interested in that from the summary that you provided and wonder if you could give us a little bit more information about that, you know, dig a little deeper into what you do for somebody who needs to build some resilience Mm -hmm. around emotional regulation. What are the kinds of things you do? Sure. Well, there's a lot of different things. I first work on just identifying how they're feeling their emotions. I know a lot of times we work with feeling words and making sure that they can name the feeling that they're feeling. I use what I've kind of created called the responsiveness scale, and it's based off of the arousal scale that a lot of people are familiar with. And it's a one to 10, five being neutral, 10 being hyper-responsive, one being hypo-responsive. And we work on where our emotions are on this scale. And they identify, you know, it's okay to feel an emotion as long as I'm able to keep it in control, which is that, you know, five-ish, that mid-range. And when I start working more towards a 10 or a one, that's when I need to use a coping skill. That's when I can identify that. I need to use a coping skill. And sometimes when we're feeling emotions for the first time, it's much easier to put a number on it than trying to, you know, really dive into that emotion. And so that's kind of where I start. And something that occupational therapists do is we kind of step away from the psychoeducational model. So not so much lecturing and it's more hands-on activity. And so when I'm teaching a client or group of clients coping skills, we're physically doing those coping skills. So if we're talking about deep breathing or mindfulness, we're practicing that rather than necessarily sitting down and lecturing about it. Or we physically go on walks or in life skills, we go to the grocery store and we actually cook a meal together as a group. So it's all very hands-on. And then the other side of emotional regulation that is often overlooked in the adult population as a whole is sensory input and sensory regulation. And this is really popular. A lot of people might be familiar with it with individuals with autism or children in general. Also, a lot of people are familiar when it comes to individuals that have Alzheimer's and dementia. They might use some sensations, but every adult has their own sensory preferences. And when we're in recovery from substance use or recovering from mental illness, typically there's sensory differences as well. And so I'll assess their sensory needs. 
and help them with what I call a sensory diet. So how they can help regulate their own body sensations. And then also what modifications we can make in our program. So if their vision is very sensitive and we've got fluorescent lights on in the group, and it's a really loud and noisy and bustly group, they may not do very well in there. So how can we modify it to help them regulate? Or if it's a group that has like a lot of education and lecture in it, and it seems like they're not paying attention, it might be because they're understimulated and they need something else to kind of get their system going. And so I work a lot with helping them understand their own sensory system as well. That's fascinating because that also empowers them to advocate for themselves too, right? Yes. This is bothering me. This is not a good space for me. I need my space to be different, right? Yes, absolutely. The name of the game with, I think, any helping profession, but particularly our philosophy in occupational therapy is the client-patient participant is gaining their own independence. So they become independent and knowing when and how and where to use whatever skill you're teaching them and also being able to advocate for themselves. So I work as their advocate until they're able to do that independently. Yeah, that's a really cool concept. And the whole hands-on piece is pretty cool to think about as well, right? Yeah. You're cooking. So everybody can't see, but you've got a sink in your office. You know, I can now imagine you with a whole kitchen in your office back there somewhere. (laughs) Well, it's down the hall, but yeah, I do have a whole kitchen. We have a washer and dryer. We go on field trips to the grocery store. I've even gone to clients' apartments and we've done laundry at their home. If they really needed that, it kind of is a little extra motivation as well. And so, yeah, really getting out there and getting it done. We've got a cemetery across the road. And for whatever reason, they love going on walks out there. So we're doing it. (laughs) That's cool. So is there anything that an occupational therapist does in a normal setting that you do differently or that you don't do? Or how is your job different in recovery court than Mm -hmm. if you were in a more typical setting for your field? Well, that's kind of a long answer to get to a shorter answer. Occupational therapy originated in mental health. Well, I did not know that until. Yeah. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's a neat a little, little factoid. Yeah. Yeah. Well, trivia question. And so, way back in the day when they treated mental illness as almost a crime and they were locking people up and there weren't any treatment options. Somebody came in and said, we should do something to occupy their time. And then came the birth of occupational therapy. So we were some of the first ones to say, well, we probably shouldn't chain people up. Like let's make them productive and see how that goes. And then concept, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Crazy how that works. And then we pushed forward to World War One. Back then it was considered shell shock, but what we know now is PTSD. Occupational therapists were the first practitioners to help soldiers coming back from World War One. And then as we progressed, payer sources kind of changed, and we are now predominantly more in the physical health and medical worlds. And so really it's a holistic profession. So we're everywhere, um, but predominant practitioners are in hospitals, skilled nursing, geriatric care, pediatrics, 
you know, any physical health setting you can think. A lot of people are familiar with this as being in the school system or being hand therapists. So there's a physical, I took a lot of anatomy and physiology, a lot of chemistry, all the sciences. And so I think that's an asset to the recovery courts as well, because I kind of have a concept of the body system and how that works. And a lot of our clients have been neglecting that aspect of their life for a very long time. And so I have an understanding of the healthcare world and can kind of get them hooked up with those services as needed as well. And so I myself used to work more in the neuro rehab side of things with brain injury and stroke because I liked the mental health aspect involved in that and just kind of transitioned over to this side. It's fascinating. Is there something that you notice from an OT perspective that is pretty typical that the recovery court participants need to work on related Mm -hmm. to their body and how it works and all of that Mm -hmm. stuff? Is this something that's pretty typical? Yeah, there's a huge lack of body awareness, I find a lot of times, especially with our mental health court population, but really across the board in all of our courts, they're just awareness that the mind and body are connected. I'm sure most of our clinicians are familiar with that phenomenon. There's also just a general overall body deconditioning that I see a lot of the mental health court clients that I work with that maybe have a very, very severe and persistent mental illness that they're pretty impaired with are typically have a lot of deconditioning within their body. And although I'm not necessarily treating that because I can't do so without a doctor's order and there's, you know, all kinds of ethics with that, it is interesting to see. And I try to incorporate gross motor movement in a lot of my sessions because we know with trauma, the body and mind are connected and we need to incorporate those to heal. And so we dance, we do stretching, we go on walks. And when we're talking about something, I'll have them walk up to the board to write it on the board. You know, we're moving around in group the whole time. Yeah. When you say those words, I automatically think of like fitness. Uh Is that what you're talking about? You know, that there's a lack of fitness or are you talking about things that are a little bit more detailed that we take for granted? It's probably a little bit of both. You know, if you're experiencing significant depression or even the depression that comes with post-acute withdrawal symptoms, you're not going to be going out and doing physically active work a lot of the times. You're not taking care of your physical health or your mental health at that point. And then also, I've noticed a lot of our individuals have not been given the opportunity to learn these hobbies and activities. We stay fit because we're walking around. You might be involved in, you know, your church softball league or you're chasing after your kids or whatever. And and these opportunities are not necessarily available. Or if you spent significant time incarcerated and you're depressed and you're laying in there, there's not a lot of physical fitness happening with that or just a simple lack of awareness of what I need to do to keep my body moving now that I'm getting older and things start to kind of (laughs) break down on you and you've got to keep going, you know? So I think it's a variety of things. It's hard to say I'm I'm not a diagnostician by any means, but it is a interesting correlation I've noticed for sure. Do you include something for every person in like their case plan or do you do your own little assessment and then plan for each person? How do you 
do that within the recovery court system? So I have a screening tool that I have a lot of students, one of my students created for me. It's 15 or 20 questions and all of the staff here are familiar with it. And so if they feel that somebody might benefit or they're not sure if they would benefit from occupational therapy, they fill it out. And if they check yes on at least one of the things, they go ahead and refer them to me. And I do a full evaluation. I have a variety of assessments I use it on a case-by-case basis. One of them's just kind of a general overall well-being in all aspects of their life. I do cognitive screenings. I do sensory assessments. And we kind of see where they're at, what they need help with. And then I write my own occupational therapy treatment plan. And we go from there. That's fascinating. Is there anything else besides what you mentioned already that you think you bring to the table in terms of the recovery court participants because of your background? Well, we have, and I know a lot of courts probably, but I can only speak for the 16th Judicial District. We have like the most amazing team. We have so many talented staff members here. I like have the utmost respect for all of my coworkers. I think we all bring something different and unique to the table. And then my background has more of this holistic. And when I say holistic, I don't mean, you know, essential oils and that sort of thing. I know that's kind of a buzzword right now. I think that's good to say. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. Just in case that's where somebody goes. (laughs) I know that's where people's mind go. When I say holistic, I mean, whole body, mind, body, spirit, mental health, physical health, and everything in between. And my my background and philosophy is on creating independence in what the client wants to be independent in. Very client-centered profession and very focused on you do the most you can do. Do we need to modify the environment? Do we need to figure out a different way to help you do this? Do we need to teach you skills? Whatever it may be, but how can you be the most independent and successful at what you want to do? And so that's kind of where I'm coming from with things. And I think that meshes well with the spirit of recovery court and how recovery courts in general are looking to make successful transitions into the community and help those individuals. And I can help with that transition by teaching those skills that may have never had the option to learn or learn effectively. The whole time you've been talking, I just keep coming back to what I know to be success for recovery court participants really is around after the graduation, right? After graduation, are they able to do these things that they need to do to take care of themselves, to follow their passion, whatever those hobbies they've determined are, to go to the job, to know how to get a job if they don't have one. All of those things are so valuable. And that ability to know how to do all those things goes beyond graduation. You know, that's something they can use for the rest of their lives. And so, you know, that really creates success for people. I can see the value there. Is there anything that I haven't asked you or anything that we should know about you as an occupational therapist in recovery court that I didn't ask? Well, just going back to how you were talking about the value of knowing those skills, just another little tidbit on occupational therapy. Occupational therapists have been working in the jail systems and prison systems for a very long time. There's a lot of OTs in the prison systems. 
you know, I'm on a judicial based occupational therapy group and I'm one of, if not the first recovery court occupational therapist. So it's kind of, you know, recovery courts is kind of this, even though they've been around for a minute, it's still this big innovation in the judicial system. And so it's kind of the next step of how OTs can help within the judicial system, reducing that. And so, yeah, I'm just really excited to be a part of it. And it's an awesome opportunity. I've learned so much since being here. Recovery court professionals are, are some really, really cool people. So I just passionate. feel fortunate. They're passionate yes. and hardworking, aren't they? <laughs> oh my gosh, yes. So I'm just thrilled to be here. I get to have a lot of OT students come and join me. And so kind of getting the word out about recovery courts, I feel like the two worlds or outside of recovery courts and the court system in general, a lot of people don't know what it is that's happening. So I feel like it's a fun opportunity to just let everybody know the options that are out there for sure. So the students that you keep talking about, are we talking internships or what are we talking? So there's students that are going through occupational therapy school right now in order to complete occupational therapy school, just like a nurse or a doctor, whoever you have to do a clinical rotation. So they have to do, I believe it's three 40 hour rotations and then two 12 week rotations full time. And so basically, yeah, an internship and they're working full time as a quote unquote OT or a student OT under my supervision and get to learn all this stuff hands on. I love that. Well, thank you very much for talking with us today. I I just think it's a really cool, innovative thing that you guys are doing down there and certainly want to continue to keep up with what you're doing. I know we've talked about the conference, so we will have to have a further conversation about that. But thank you very much to you and to all our listeners. If you haven't already connected to us on social media, you need to do that. We have a Facebook page. We're on Twitter at TADCPTN.org. We're on Instagram, or you can check out our website and connect to all of our social media from there at www.tarcp.org. And to the Recovery Court folks listening, remember, Recovery Courts work because of you. Until next time.